Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Something like a, a, a premillennial position would believe in immediate dominion. Christ is going to come and rapture the church and after seven years establish his kingdom uh, without any sort of uh, resistance. Um, a, an amillennial position is an immaterial dominion only over the church that Christ has, and it's indeterminate as far as when that's going to extend uh, over the world. Postmillennialism believes in imminent dominion. Christ currently reigns not just over the church, but over all things uh, and all peoples and all nations, and that reign is slowly extending uh, in history is what sets the postmillennial position apart from the others. But the question that we uh, started looking at last week was exactly how that reign is extended. How, when, and what's our part in that? Um, if we say that Christ is ruling and reigning, and obviously there are sectors of our world where it doesn't look like he is, um, how do we change that? How do we go about that? And there's a few different models that we considered that are currently out there. But one thing that's common to each of those models is that they have a, a, a paucity, a, a lack of the consideration of the flow of Scripture. Um, Even though the books that we uh, are sometimes offered to us about how to take dominion are biblical in the broad sense, as in they throw out ideas that are good and then they quote verses behind them uh, that makes them look like they're biblical, Uh, there are some things that need to be shorn up and even reformed in those books uh, based on what we see in Scripture. So we're getting a big uh, wide-angle view of the biblical story because it teaches us how to extend the dominion of Christ. And we don't take our cues from reactions to what the culture is doing. We need to see how Scripture suggests we, uh, and Scripture commands uh, that we extend the reign of Christ. So picking up, we covered uh, the creation last week, and we began with just a definition. What do, even, what do we mean when we say that word dominion? A lot of times we uh, automatically have a vision of a military marching in right, to conquer. Conquest is often the um, immediate verbal analogy that we use to talk about dominion. But actually, if you consider the etymology of the word, it literally means house building. Dominion is building a house. It is a domus. It's a domestic project. It's, uh, we're, we're creating the domicile that we see God building in Genesis 1. The entire structure of the cosmos is a house where God is, uh, it's a temple palace that God has created where he can fellowship with uh, man, ultimately. The structure of creation points to how we take dominion, and even the subject of creation, which is man himself. Uh, God starts on the first couple of days forming and filling the, uh, um, the welter and waste world. Uh, it's empty and void, and so he forms it and fills it. Man then is formed and filled from that creation in order to go and form and fill it even further, uh, to grow up into God's vice-regent, as uh, the Westminster Confession says, his co-ruler. Adam, though, uh, mankind is prepared for dominion, and they're supposed to have patient faith as they're cultivating uh, their priestly task, right? He's the guardian of the garden. Uh, He guards the garden by keeping the commandments of God uh, in that special place where he meets with him. 
But then finally we see that sin perverts dominion by turning Adam and Eve into autonomous judges. They weren't quite ready for that knowledge of good and evil, which would have been the kingly wisdom that they were to exercise over the world. Um, and instead they took it before it was time outside of the command of God by the temptation of the first false teacher, the serpent. And then they now become the arbiters. So the dominion project has been derailed, we could say, where we left off. Uh, we'll pick up here in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14, uh, we've seen that the first judgment Adam makes, okay, he's put himself now in this grand position as the royal judge of, over creation, and God says, let's hear your first judgment. And what's that first judgment? This is all your fault. The woman that you gave me, she's the one that made me do this. Okay? Turns to the woman, what do you think about this? Uh, it was the serpent. Uh, blame shifting is immediate instead of the acceptance of responsibility like a good leader and a good king would do, okay? like a good royal priest would do. Um, all right, so let's pick up in verse 14. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, some of you approached me after to talk about this verse a little bit because why would the serpent's punishment be to go on its belly and lick the dust when that's what serpents do? Um, there is maybe an idea of a, uh, uh, a dragon-like picture behind what the serpent's supposed to be. Perhaps it was winged in the beginning, and like Nebuchadnezzar, it's a, a great beast that has its wings clipped, and it goes crawling on the ground now, like Nebuchadnezzar does in the book of Daniel. Um, something along those lines. I will put enmity, verse 15, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, literally your translation might have her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's now going to be this war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Um, and this really sets up uh, the entire rest of Scripture. That conflict between those two seed lines, particularly the book of Genesis, but also the rest of Scripture in general, um, if something doesn't make sense, why are these people fighting these people? Why are Canaanites bad? Where did that begin? Uh, that's all soon to be explained by these seed lines. Uh, why pick Abraham? Where does Noah come from? All of that is answered by Genesis 3.15. And ultimately Christ as well, right? The final fulfillment of this promise. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, out of which, for, uh, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, a couple of things to get down uh, about this passage, and a couple of things that we have to square away before we can move forward, um, is just the simple fact that notice um, what the curse falls on. Uh, sometimes we have a tendency to kind of gloss over this passage very quickly and think, okay, man is cursed. Uh, does God explicitly curse man anywhere in this passage? What are the two things that are cursed here? It's the serpent and the ground. Okay? That doesn't mean man goes away unscathed, right? He's punished. Uh, but the serpent and the ground mediate the curse on behalf of man. 
Okay? Um, the serpent and the ground mediate the curse on behalf of man. What falls to man then? Uh, to man and woman specifically falls pain. Okay? That's the punishment that's dealt to them for the sin. Specifically, uh, there's a, it's an internal and an external pain that comes to them now. For the woman, uh, her desires contrary to her husband, there's the internal, and then in pain, she's going to bear seed. Uh, just like Adam is told, uh, his work, uh, his bringing forth seed from the ground, uh, just like the womb of Eve now is going to bear good fruit and thorns, the ground, in the exact same language, it's going to bear uh, good fruit and thorns. Um, so in their work now, Adam's work with the ground and Eve's work with her children in the home, pain is involved and difficulty and toil. So the image of God, what we need to see from that, uh, is not cursed particularly. Adam and Eve do not have their, um, their uh, commission to take dominion taken away from them. Uh, nowhere do we see um, God saying, you know, we'll talk about it soon with the flood, uh, but what comes from the curse that's dealt to the serpent and the woman isn't, okay, now you will no longer rule, uh, get out of the garden and, you know, just dwell in a tent and I'll come and fix this later. They are still called to go out and actually they are sent out immediately in verse 20. Look what happens. Uh, dominion is still going to come, but now it's going to come through blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, whereas before it would have been much easier. Adam and Eve are removed. Verse 20, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Yahweh God made Adam for, uh, and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the first atonement made, uh, the first covering. Adam and Eve put on garments from the animals. Remember, there's a created analogy between man and animals that we looked at last time. Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Does anybody have a dash right at the end of that in your translation? Um, there's something, uh, it's almost like God stops mid-sentence. The thought isn't completed, um, which obviously leads us to wonder, what? Why not take the tree and eat and live forever? What would happen? Okay. Well, remember the state of Adam and Eve. They're in an unconfirmed, immature state. They, haven't, uh, they don't have the ability to make those good judgments. They don't have their um, soul trained by discipline uh, in order to know what is properly good and evil. And if they eat and live and continue on in that state, the plan of dominion is going to be absolutely ruined instead of just uh, harmed now. So they're taken out of the garden for their own good. This is a grace to them. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now, again, just like in the beginning, an angel is put in front of the garden uh, to be the one that guards. Um, and uh, he's now fulfilling the task that Adam was supposed to have. Adam was the original keeper, the guardian of the garden. Now the angel has taken that place because he failed. Um, even though man is created to mature above the angels, he's now in immaturity subject to be under the angels and barred from uh, this uh, tree that would have given him life. And uh, it's, notice what would happen. What would, Adam, what would happen to Adam if he tried to get back into the immediate presence of God? Fiery sword. 
he would have to be cut and burned. In order to re-enter the presence of God, he would need to become a burnt offering. Uh, he would need to become uh, something that's chopped up, put into a flame, and ascends. Okay? Remember that context determines content, right? Moses is writing this when people are looking at the tabernacle, seeing a garden-like place where they can go and meet with God. And if they want to get into God's presence in the tabernacle, they walk in, and what's the first thing? Burnt offering on the altar of burnt offerings. Um, so Adam is in the same position as every ordinary Israelite is the image that's being uh, set up for us here. Now Adam knew his wife, chapter 4, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son saying, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. She expects this to be the promised son that has been, uh, uh, that was made back in chapter 3, verse 15. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Yahweh had regard for Abel uh, and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Okay? This uh, maybe seems a little arbitrary to you. Why would he, why would he like Abel's and not Cain's? Okay? Well, remember what we've just learned. Uh, Cain is working the ground, and what do we know about things that come out of the ground? They're cursed. Okay? They can't be brought to God as something that would give blessing uh, because they are under divine sanction. Uh, and also, if something's going to make a covering for you, okay, an atonement, as it had made for Adam and Eve, it has to be something that you can clothe yourself with. When Adam and Eve clothed themselves with fig leaves, with things from the ground that doesn't end too well. Cain now is repeating the error of his parents, trying to make a covering and an atonement for himself uh, based on leafy things instead of bloody things. So they have to bring an animal in. Um, and Abel recognizes this and is praised for that. And notice what happens. But for Cain, uh, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. His countenance fell, he might have. Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Notice the kindness of this. Okay, sometimes I think we can forget this. Uh, Cain is kindly rebuked by the Lord here. Uh, this discipline that God, he doesn't come down and fire and wrath and just totally consume Cain for what he's done. He says, look, just bring me the right thing next time and we won't have to have this conversation again. But Cain is unable to do that. He has an inability now to control his desire to control his situation. Uh, remember, his parents now have put humanity in a place of being autonomous judges Cain is mad. Well, I brought this. Why isn't it good enough? God should just accept this. I brought it, and that should be all that matters. This was the best thing I had. Okay. Instead of following what God had commanded and demonstrated and showed, he wants to have things his own way, and he's angry. He's rebuked, and he's told that sin is crouching at the door. Okay. Like the serpent, it's ready to attack if he's not on his guard, if he's not guarding not just the garden, but his own heart from the temptations of sin. So we see that sin seizes Cain, just like the serpent 
seized Adam and Eve. Why are you uh, uh, Cain, verse 8, spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And Yahweh said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Similar question that he asked to Adam after that sin. Um, he knows where he is. He's asking him to confess. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I his guardian? Okay, in the same way that Adam uh, essentially abdicates his responsibility to be the, garden of, uh, to the, be the guardian of Eve, now Cain is abdicating his responsibility as the elder brother to be the guardian of Abel. And Yahweh said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer over the earth. Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Cain recognizes the, the talionic justice, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, I've killed, and now I deserve to be killed. Um, notice, though, the punishment that's given to Cain. Uh, he's now going out further. Sin always brings an exile, uh, a distance from God. To be in sin is to be not separated and holy to God, but unseparated, unholy, okay? Removed further and further away from him. Uh, when Adam and Eve sin, they are taken out of the garden, his immediate presence. When Cain sins, now he's taken out of the land, uh, the land outside of Eden into just the rest of the earth to wander over uh, the world. And now, just, now, now notice, this sets up the flood, there's nowhere else to go if man keeps sinning. There's no more exile to happen. If he's pushed out any further, he would be in the water. Okay? Uh, so Cain is driven out. There's a mark of protection put on him uh, that we see, and he goes and settles in Nod, east of Eden. So further and further, we're going out. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he had built a city, he called the name of his city after his son, Enoch. All right, notice this. The first people who get to build a civilization are the wicked. Okay? Notice what happens. Look down at verse 20 after... Um, uh, Lamech. Well, I'm sorry, let's just keep going. To Enoch, verse 18, was born Erad, and to Erad, Mahujael, and to Mahujael, fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. Okay, so for now, the first time, it's not only, you know, some sort of violence on the earth that's specifically mentioned as sinful, but now we have the first instance of a, a sexual immorality. Okay, uh, breaking God's created order for one man and one woman, the leaving and cleaving, now we have a man who has taken two wives. Ada, uh, excuse me, two wives. The one was Ada and the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So the first real civilization and economy maker. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the first of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. He was the first one to make a jubilee. Okay, where we get that word from. Um, he makes these instruments, which will soon become instruments of war, we know. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. So what does man, sinful man do with this civilization? Does he build it into a culture that pleases the Lord? The sisters of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zira, uh, Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. Okay, a man, look at the, the hubris now that comes out of this. A man who has taken to himself more than one wife, who uses all those wonderful gifts of God's creation. Remember all the gold and silver and stone was outside of the world, past those rivers. Now that man is out there, Adam was supposed to bring those things back in and make the garden into God's temple palace, but now they have become instruments of death. Uh, these uh, rocks and iron are melted down not to bless and to um, make the world uh, more habitable and more hospitable. They are used for violence. Um, he kills the young man for wounding him. It's not just how this happens, okay? Um, you know, maybe it was a son of some sort that uh, gets mad and hits him or a co-worker or something. And in return for a dishonor, a slap, he gives him death, uh, which does not match. The, the punishment there doesn't fit the crime, right? That's extreme. It's, it's over what's necessary. And notice how he puts himself in the place of God himself. Uh, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, remember that was the promise from Yahweh, my revenge is 77-fold. I'm more important than Cain was. God maybe no, doesn't recognize that, but I do. Okay. Uh, I am greater than my father. And Adam knew his wife again. The scene splits here. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also, was uh, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. So we have here specifically... Um, uh, and this is why all the genealogies are in Genesis. Um, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are now being established. And you can mark them out now. And I, we're going to note this is huge. This is key for the rest of Scripture. Um, it actually sets up the entire rest of the story. How do you tell that someone belongs to the seed of the serpent? What sets them apart? Two things have been established already. Uh, violence, okay, uh, unnecessary bloodshedding, and sexual immorality. What sets apart those people from the descendants of the seed of the woman? They call upon the name of Yahweh. Okay, we're going to see that over and over. Remember, that's what Abraham does and all of his sons after him. Uh, that's telling us something very specific. While the other nations around them are always inciting war and violence and taking wives, right? How many times does that happen in Abraham's story? So that's the two things that are established there. You can see these two seeds clearly based on what they do. We get the 14 generations in verse 5 from Seth to, uh, uh, to Noah is the story that's being set up. So the seed now is the seed of the woman. The promised seed is coming through Seth ultimately to Noah. Noah's name means rest. He's going to, bring the one, he's going to be the one that brings rest on the earth from all the violence and immorality going on. Uh, there's 14 generations. It's a double seven. It's a new creation coming in. Chapter 6. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, I figured I'm going to get some questions about this one. I can see Brian leaning heavily at me. <laughs> um, I don't think it's angelic beings. All right, there's my, I'll drop that out there. Okay, we can move on. If you want to talk about Jude 13 later, we'll do it. Uh, but I don't think it is, okay? I think sons of God is a title for the righteous descendants of Seth, and daughters of men is the ungodly line 
uh, of the uh, descendants of Cain. Uh, the mixing that's going on here isn't some kind of titan-forming um, people. Uh, yeah, the Nephilim come from them, right, the great ones, uh, but uh, other people in Scripture are described as Nephilim who aren't uh, angelic beings. Uh, you can be big and great and important and not have to be some kind of godlike thing uh, in your essence. So that's it. If you want to ask questions after, we can do it. I'll do my best. Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Uh, but don't miss the point of what just happened there. Um, we see again, uh, what's the error? Uh, the error is twofold from man, violence and sexual immorality. Here the sexual immorality has come in again because the seed lines are mixing. They're not supposed to do that, right? The unbelievers are not supposed to marry with believers. I've heard Jim Jordan say that what's actually going on here in chapter 6, verse 1 is uh, the uh, Christian school boys start to think that the public school girls are more attractive, right? <laughs> so they start wandering over there. Um, uh, I think that's a pretty good summary of Genesis 6, 1. Uh, it's probably in the Hebrew somewhere. Uh, so, my spirit shall not abide with man, or you might have strive uh, in that passage. So remember, God comes down, Genesis 3.8, in the spirit of the day, on the day of judgment, on the Sabbath, and declares good from evil uh, between Adam and Eve. Now uh, God says, all right, 120 years, three cycles of 40. Okay, think about all through Scripture how 40 is a number of testing and waiting. Um, we're told in Second uh, Peter that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. For three cycles of 40 years, he's going around warning people, here's what's going to happen. Better be ready. Okay. The time is coming. This is your testing period. God's giving you a perfect amount of time to wait before he comes in the spirit of the day and judges again as he, done, as he had done in the beginning. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, so he sees that immoral the sexual immorality, the mixing of those lines, the believers and the unbelievers. What else is wrong on the earth? Well, look down at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So again, violence and sexual immorality. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And of course, Genesis 6, 8, Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord by this time. Noah is chosen out of this generation uh, for the two reasons that we've already seen. As the seed of Seth, he calls upon the name of Yahweh, and he does not participate in the intermarriage that's going on here and does not participate in the violence that's going on. And so he is the man that is chosen to build the ark uh, of salvation that will renew the earth. Okay, you know the flood story, so we're not going to belabor it. Uh, the flood comes, and Noah and his family are in the ark for something like 361 days, somewhere around there. That is about the total, almost a year of time that they're in the ark. Um, so skip over. Uh, and that ark, by the way, it's got three decks. Remember we talked about last time, God frames the world as earth, firmament, heaven, and highest heaven. It's a three-layered cosmos we live in. The earth has the Garden of Eden, the land of Eden, the land outside of Eden. And now Noah is in an ark with three decks also. Okay, it's a new creation that Noah's in. In this new creation, he's on a big water ball. The world has started over just like it was at the beginning when the Spirit of God was moving over the deep. Um, so there's a, a total recreation here. He's even an Adam, uh, a rest bringer, 
okay, created for rest, who is uh, in a garden-like place, a tree thing with animals that he's named off two by two. Okay? Um, so very much um, the same story as Adam. And just like Adam, we see what happens uh, at the end here. Go to chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Look at that. Immediately to, to re-enter the presence of God after, um, after the, the big judgment has come upon the earth after this year, fire and knife, okay? Just like was outside of the garden. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, okay, not man, for the intention of man's heart is only evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the flood shows us here, uh, and what God ultimately says at the end of this, is that though violence and sexual immorality that have been happening, though they're problematic, they're only manifestations of the real problem. The real problem, the heart of the problem, is the heart of man. And we're going to see that. Uh, if, if the flood fixed everything, that would be the end of the story, right? If God was able to just start over with Noah, uh, the righteous one, then nothing would need, else would need to happen. He would start over and he would be the new Adam and uh, the story would continue on until the dominion is consummated at the end of all things. But the heart of man is the problem. Exile is on the inside. Man has taken himself away from God. God recognizes that, as Augustine says, we have the libido dominandi. We have the desire to dominate. Okay? And that is the key difference okay, between what we see the descendants of Cain doing and what we see Noah and his descendants doing. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The descendants of the evil one are not interested in dominion. They're interested in domination. Two very different things. One's house building and one's building a house on blood. Okay? Uh, and through any personal means to do that. They have concupiscence. They're born with this uh, desire for pleasure that's insatiable. They want to be rulers over all things. And this comes not from the environment, not from nature, but from their heart. Okay? Uh, they don't need just a completely new place in nature, uh, everything recreated. They need a new nature totally okay, from the inside out. So the story starts, and we see the exact same scene set up. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, so form and fill. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast that is on the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Just like Adam had a prohibition on specific foods uh, and something that he had to fast from, Noah now also has something that he has to fast from. You can eat anything except this one thing just like he tells to Adam. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And from every beast, I will require a reckoning from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
Man is God's image. He's created to take dominion. And anyone who tries to stop that through domination now is going to be dealt with by death. Did you get that? Okay. Uh, so the capital punishment here is put in place in order to stave off and um, curtail man's tendency to violence. Right? That was the big problem that was on the earth, and now it's put in place as a buffer okay, uh, to allow the seed the ability, uh, the seed of the woman to continue and have the ability to establish the house of God on earth as it is in heaven. And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Uh, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God takes now his bow, uh, his symbol of war, okay, against the earth and against mankind, and he hangs it up. He hangs his war bow in the sky. Uh, and notice who is reminded by that sign. It's God who is reminded by it. Anytime I see the bow in the clouds, I will remember not to flood the earth. Okay, the sign is not primarily, the signs, the sacraments of the covenant, even the ones that we have, aren't primarily symbols for us. They're to remind God. And that's not because God forgets, right? That's not the idea here. It reminds him that he is supposed to act in a specific way toward us. Uh, because we participate uh, in that covenant. So all living things are rescued because God has given a sign for them that when he looks at it, he remembers to act a certain way. Baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, function as the same way for us as signs. This is how God marks out and remembers his people um, and uh, creates his people right through baptism. Uh, all right, moving on. Let's go to... Uh, where do we want to go here? Go to verse 18 in chapter 9. Chapter 18, verse 9. Excuse me. Other way. You get it. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark. They were Ham, uh, excuse me, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. A little dark note put in there for us. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, the whole earth, uh, from, uh, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He, just like his father Adam, plants a garden to live in. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, complicated story, uh, but this is a new fall scene that happens in a garden. Okay, and remember, what was the primary sin of the first fall? The primary sin of the first fall was Adam and Eve before time reaching for authority that didn't belong to them. Because the serpent tempted them that they were ready for it now. They didn't have to wait okay, on the authority that would be conferred to them later to make judgments of good and evil. 
Um, remember, Talionic justice. Lamech is uh, looked at as a bad man earlier because somebody slaps him in the face and he stabs them to death. Okay? Those, the crime doesn't fit the punishment. What's the sin of Ham? What's so bad about what he does? Look at the punishment that God delivers perfectly. Cursed became a servant of servants shall his brothers be. That tells us at least one thing. Whatever the sin was that Ham committed here, it had to do with authority. He was trying to take the authority of his father. What's another symbol of that? Well, he uh, sees the nakedness of his father. He is disrobed all through Genesis. People who are important and who have authority are people who wear robes. Okay? Uh, Joseph is the most obvious story of that. So Cain, like a serpent, slithers into the tent where he finds his father without his authority. Uh, he's asleep. His father's sight is dim from the wine he's drunk. Uh, his father is unable to make judgments between good and evil. And maybe Ham walks in and says something like, this guy's the leader now? Okay, Laying there in a drunken stupor? I could do better than that. Uh, if I had the authority. Hey, guys, let me tell you this plan as he's speaking to his brothers. Notice what they do. They don't look at their father. They don't see him and make a judgment over him like Cain does. They walk backward um, and don't uh, pass uh, over their father, uh, either good or evil, and they re-robe him. Okay? They lay the authority back on him that is rightfully his. And because of that, they are promised authority in the future. Uh, Canaan will be their servant, and they will be over them. They will have large tents for even Japheth to dwell in. The descendants of Shem will, uh, meaning that they will have large kingdoms, of course. So that's the story. We can chat about that more if you would like. Uh, but just see, the same thing happens. Uh, the sins of uh, Adam and Eve and also of Cain wanting to have authority to sacrifice whatever he wants to sacrifice. All of these things have to do with authority and dominion is the idea here. The seed of the serpent always tries to get dominion through domination, okay? through violence, through stealing authority somehow. And what do we see? Just like Cain, the descendants of Ham go out, chapter 10. If you ever want to know who the good guys and the bad guys are in the Old Testament, go back to Genesis 10. It'll explain everything. Why is Egypt bad? Why are the Philistines? Who are these Amalekites? They're all the descendants of Ham. Okay? They're all the ones that are destined to be subjugated to the kingdom of God. Chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Notice that, bitumen and pitch. That's ark language. They're building a new ark, okay? uh, something that will bring them together as their salvation as humanity, but it's actually going to lead to their condemnation. So it's an anti-ark, and it's an anti-Eden. It's a tower to heaven where they want to meet God. Uh, and ultimately, to be God, they want to overthrow Him okay? and establish themselves to make a name for themselves, to be the great ones of the earth and the rulers of all things. Yahweh, notice the irony here, Yahweh came down to see the city. Let's build a tower to heaven. And God says, what are they doing down there? He has to come down. It's, the plan's not working out as well as they thought it would. Okay, is chapter 11, verse 5. And Yahweh said, behold, they're one people. And they have one language. Um, the idea here of language, it's more than just they have the same vocabulary and syntax. Um, 
the idea is uh, they have the same lip, is what it would be. There are people who gather around this mountain place where they're seeking to be godlike, and they're lipping the same thing. Um, there's an idea of liturgy here. Um, what makes a people a people is the fact that they gather around religious centers and they know the same words to say. Okay, it's ritual wording that's being uh, spoken of here, um, and specifically the the vocab mentioned there with lip gives that away. So this is something religious. Here in the Tower of Babel, we have the ultimate violence. We have the descendants of Ham who are new and worse Cains because they don't just want to uh, you know, rule over their brother and exact violence against their brothers. They are ready to even exact violence against God to establish themselves on his very throne in the heavens. This Babel is a false Eden. It's a place of false liturgical piety. It's worse than even the city that Enoch built because they don't just want to be uh, greater than man. They want to be greater than God. And this is where we will leave off for the week. At the end of chapter 11, we get the descendants all the way down to Abram, and we will pick up there um, in our study. So I, big, big picture summary, what you should be taking away. Got the sea lines are established. Um, what marks out the seed of the serpent is violence and sexual immorality. And those two things combined together uh, ultimately lead to domination over the world. The sons of God, the descendants of Seth, are rest bringers and they call upon the name of Yahweh. And they are the ones who are going to build God's house, even though um, it's going to be difficult and it's going to come through hardship and it's going to come through much, much patience. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.